Hello, and welcome to the Truth and Grace podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Russ, and I want to thank you for joining me today. On Truth and Grace, we tackle tough topics in the Christian church, and we do it by strengthening believers through God's word and pointing to his abundant grace. I don't sugarcoat it over here, but I do hope to wrestle with what's messy in the grace. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy this show, would you mind subscribing and leaving a review? By doing both, you greatly help the show in its visibility and getting it out there to just more people. So please consider helping with the subscribe and review. In addition, consider becoming a Patreon supporter and help sustain this ministry through a monthly gift. You can learn more about that in my show notes. In this episode, I want to talk about sex. Yes, you heard me correctly. We are going there. And I've talked about sex before, about masturbation, porn, and my own struggle with a sexual addiction. I'll link that episode in the show notes. It's called Sex and Grace. But today I want to talk more specifically about a movement that's sweeping through our church. And it has a few names. It's been called Sexual Liberation. Sex Positive Christianity, the Sexual Revolution. It's a movement that's essentially affirming any and all consensual sexual activity between people as long as the act doesn't bring harm to anybody in the process. This not only opens the gate, but throws it wide open to a variety of sexual activity. What saddens me is that I'm starting to see more and more self-proclaimed Christians advocate for this movement. You know, people waving a Jesus banner while also communicating that sex is cool with God as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Books being written and featured in mainstream media that celebrate sex-positive Christianity as the new norm. People want to detach shame from sex, and I do get where they are coming from. For too long, the church hasn't talked about sex well. And we need to have more hard and uncomfortable conversations about it. However, shame exists for a reason, and it's tied to a sin. Without shame, we don't see our sin, and therefore we don't see our need for Jesus and redemption. Detaching shame from sex isn't the answer. Jesus is. But let's take it back a little bit and talk about, well, what is sexual immorality, right? There are many verses in the Bible regarding sexual immorality, but perhaps the best place to start is with the creation story in Genesis. In chapters one and two, we find reasoning as to why God created for Adam, the woman Eve, to be a compatible partner. He continues to describe that the two should join in marriage and become one flesh. With that said, an emphasis is placed on the important role their relationship plays in procreation. In its purest form, sexual immorality would be any sexual act outside of marriage between one man and one woman. 1 Corinthians 6 provides us with further insight regarding the dangers of sexual immorality and what it might entail. Verses 9 through 10 share this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, from this, we see right away that adultery and homosexuality would align with sexual immorality. Now, the root word for immorality in this passage is porneia, 
meaning illicit sexual intercourse, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, intercourse with animals or close relatives, or sex with a divorced person. It also stems from porneo, which has a similar meaning but also is defined as prostitution and lust. Now, attaching the word lust, this is where it gets a little interesting. Attaching the word lust to sexual immorality creates room for a longer list, including porn, pedophilia, masturbation in most cases. But let's talk a little bit more about lust, shall we? Because as I write about sex and masturbation and lust, and I've been doing that quite a bit lately, I've also received some pushback from people wanting to define lust in a way that removes it from being wrong. So let's talk about lust. Okay, let's define it. What is it? Well, most people generalize lust as a strong craving or desire, and it's often used in a sexual nature. In fact, the word is never used in a positive context. Rather, it's primarily used when talking about either a strong desire for sexual immorality or idolatrous worship. In the Old Testament, the word is primarily used to describe idolatrous activities. Although it does have sexual concerns in at least two instances, we see that in Job 31 verse 1 and Proverbs 6 25. In both, the context is negative in meaning and is accompanied by a strong warning of God's punishment. Now in the New Testament, the word moves from referring primarily to idolatry to referring instead almost exclusively to sexual immorality. This sexual immorality, however, is not intended to represent actions alone since lust occurs first as a thought in the mind, right? For instance, Jesus commands that a man is not to even look at a woman lustfully because that is the same as committing the physical act of adultery. Both are sin, and that's found in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. In each of the texts where Paul uses the word, now we're talking about Paul, it clearly is condemned like um, of sexual immorality, both homosexual and heterosexual. The command from Paul is to utterly destroy those inordinate desires that most often manifest themselves in the area of sexuality. Colossians 3 verse 5. Now, Peter points out in 1 Peter 4 3 that Lust is evidence of a pagan lifestyle. It reads, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And finally, we look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We must remember that a lust occurs in the mind and is not a physical action in and of itself. It does, however, have great potential of becoming an action, indeed very, very damaging and dangerous. Now, personally, I know I just gave a lot of scripture and that was a lot of context, but Personally, the best decision um, or de definition I can give is a definition I actually got from John Piper. And I'll post the link that he wrote uh, in my show notes to, to an article in my show notes. And he says this, 
Lust is when a sexual desire dishonors its object, so a person, and disregards God. So lust is a sexual desire that dishonors an object and disregards God. And he pulls this definition from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. And I'm going to read it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one tra transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now notice in verses four and five um, that it says to do something one way, but not another way. Do you see the contrast? It says in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. So there's this contrast. So the passion of lust, right, is the opposite of holiness and honor. That's where John Piper gets the definition of lust. Piper adds this in his article. Sexual desire in itself is good. God made it in the beginning. It has its proper place. But it was made to be governed or regulated or guided by two concerns. Honor toward the other person and holiness towards God. Lust is what that sexual desire becomes when that honor and that holiness are missing from it. So when you think, when you even think of someone in a sexual manner, you have sinned because to God, a thought is the same as an action. Long story short, if we return to the simplest context of God's desire for sex in Genesis, we find that again, sexual immorality would entail any sexual activity outside of a husband and a wife enjoying each other with mutual respect for God and for each other. Now, as an addition to that, sex is also a gift. So there's two primary purposes for sex. One is procreation, and we see that in Genesis, right? But the other purpose is for intimacy, you know, to cultivate intimacy with a spouse. And we find that, I mean, if you look at Song of Solomon, some people find that metaphorical. I find it to be very, um, I find that to be very literal. And so Song of Solomon is full of that, but also, um, you could see that in Genesis 4, 1. So we see that cult um, intimacy is an important part of sex as well. So sex, two purposes, procreation and to cultivate intimacy between a husband and between a wife. Now, the honest truth is God does have a whole lot to say about sexual immorality in the Bible. I actually recently wrote an article about this for Crosswalk that you can read. And I'm going to put that in the show notes as well for this episode. To say that God wants us to enjoy an abundant life, or and this is some of the, the things that you'll hear in this movement. Advocates will say, you know, God wants us to have an abundant life, or that the Bible is filled with outdated opinions on sex. These are real arguments. You know, this is to take God's word out of context. To say that God wants any of that, that God wants us to have um about these opinions about sex is to take God's word out of context. In reality, it's a false theology born out of a place of people just simply wanting to do what they want to do without condemnation. Do we need to change our conversation regarding sex in the church? Yes. But is this movement the answer 
or even remotely theologically sound? No. God wants his people to enjoy sex, but within the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. That's his design, and to say otherwise is human exertion at work. So, contrary to some of the thoughts of this movement, there are boundaries. They say that, you know, sex before marriage isn't bad, and that virginity is a social construct. But, you know, Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, they also say that God told us in scripture to have an abundant life. And to them, to these advocates, that includes sex free from shame. I don't read those words, though. I don't see that in the Bible. One can make the argument that, you know, even getting drunk or doing drugs or eating to the point of gluttony or gambling is fun as well, right? So if that lends to what I consider an abundant life, then that's acceptable. But but those acts are still wrong, right? And we know that. Listen. Don't be deceived by the attractive idea someone to push because it makes them and you feel better about engaging in sin. May your perspective be rooted in the word of God. And finally, I can't end this episode without talking about shame. Shame is a major player in this movement to free people from having to feel shame around sex. Now, does God want shame tied to sex? No, I don't believe so because he created it to be a good gift. But when we abuse that gift and enter into the sin realm, that's where the shame lives. It's not God's desire for us, but it is a natural consequence to sin. And that's any sin, not just sexual. What shame does is it comes into our sin state and it tells us to hide from God. It happened to Adam and Eve when they realized they were naked. It happened to me after I had sex with my boyfriend or anytime I watched pornography or anytime I masturbated. It's danger is that it tries to drive a wedge between God and yourself. And that's Satan's use of shame. But shame also shows us there is sin there in the first place. So while God doesn't want us to live in a state of shame and to give it power, I do believe it serves as a way to show us where we failed so we repent and return to Jesus. If we never felt shame, we'd never know our need for a savior. So while Satan uses shame as a tool to defeat us, God uses shame to show us our need for him. When you engage in sexual immorality, shame often enters the picture. It should. If it doesn't, that's, that should scare you a little bit because that would be representative of a hardened heart. But when it does enter, allow it to show you your need for Jesus, humbly repent, and turn back to him. That's when shame loses its power. When you confess your sins, he is faithful to respond. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, sin leads to shame. And you'll feel that when you, fought, when you fail God in, in any area. But it's not a condition you have to live in. Resist the inclination to pull away from God in your shame. And instead, turn to him, repent, and find sanctuary under his wings. When you do that, when you come to Jesus, he will make you a new creation and lift the shame. It's like a warning light that something isn't quite right. But it's not a permanent condition if you simply address the sin and offer it to Jesus for healing. Take your shame to him 
and he will make all things new. Thank you for joining me today. I know this was a difficult topic and it's one that I hope that I communicated with some grace. You know, my ministry is called Truth and Grace. I, I truly believe there's a balance in everything that we do, a balance of truth and grace. And this was a lot of truth, but please know that it comes from a place of, I've struggled with sexual sin for a long time. I was addicted to a lot of sexual acts for a long time. And it's something that I've really worked through. And I, I, I speak to this from a place of experience, but also in my knowledge of the word of God. And so I know it may not be the most popular topic, and I'm fully aware that it's going to make some people uncomfortable or maybe rub some people the wrong way. But this is what we see in God's word. And any anything that's a part of this sex positive Christianity movement, it's an attempt to make God's work accommodate their lifestyle. And that's not, you know, what this podcast is about. We are going to talk about the hard and messy stuff, even if it makes us uncomfortable, but we know that it's truth and hopefully it's done in grace. If this podcast is ministering to you or you think others might find it interesting, please subscribe and leave a review. A review helps this podcast grow, which helps just to get the word out to people besides you. You can also become a regular contributor to the show and Truth and Grace Ministries through Patreon. And you can find a link to my page in the show notes. Tune in again next month as we tackle tough topics in truth and grace. In the meantime, you can find more information about me, read weekly devotionals, and find out what I'm doing around the web at www.brittanyrest.com. I'll see you next time.